In mid-September, I attended a reunion of the Mobile Riverine Force Association in St. Louis. It's a topic we've wanted to explore here on Echoes for a long time, so I was grateful for the invitation and for the opportunity to speak in person to a whole bunch of river rats in one place. I ended up with more than a dozen interviews, both Army and Navy, which I've organized into two episodes. In part one, you'll hear about the origins of the Mobile Riverine Force in the Mekong Delta, and you'll hear from soldiers and sailors about arriving in Vietnam and working and living with each other. In part two, they'll share some of their most vivid memories of riverine operations and talk about what has stayed with them from that experience. Stick around. From the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, founders of The Wall, this is Echoes of the Vietnam War. I'm your host, Michael Crone, bringing you stories of service, sacrifice, and healing from people who still feel the impact of that conflict more than 50 years later. My name's Harry Hahn. I'm president of the Mobile River Reinforced Association. Harry enlisted in the Navy Reserve in 1967 as a radio man. He eventually was activated and sent to Vietnam, where he ended up in more than 100 firefights with River Squadron 13. Back during the Civil War, the Mobile River Reinforced was formed to uh, have the Navy transport Army guys uh, to fight the battles of the uh, Civil War down the Mississippi. And uh, what happened in Vietnam was uh, the Mekong Delta, which is the breadbasket of Vietnam, uh, all the rice is grown there, and it's a very important area to uh, Vietnam. Uh, at the time, uh, there were no other roads or ways to get around the Delta except on the rivers and canals. The canals that were there uh, were formed by, dug by the French, uh, so that they, during their uh, occupation of Vietnam, uh, you know, because of the rubber plantations and uh, uh, the vegetation there that the French wanted to uh, exploit, uh, you know, they dug these canals that were very straight, very well built. And uh, what happened during the Vietnam War uh, was uh, the army who were trying to fight the battles of the Delta had difficulty getting around in tracked vehicles because they couldn't uh, cross the canals. Uh, or if they got into the rice paddy type uh, areas, uh, the tracked vehicles would just get bogged down. So uh, the Department of Defense put together uh, what they called uh, Task Force 117, which was comprised of both Army and Navy. Uh, the Navy took World War II converted landing craft like you see landing on the uh, beaches of Normandy, uh, took that type of craft that had the ramps that would drop and offload the troops, uh, and made them into an up-armored 
uh, type of boat. So they actually took World War II LCM-6s and uh, on the sides of them, they put uh, one inch ballistic steel and then because they were weighting them down so, they actually put styrofoam and bar armor, which was cement reinforcing rod, uh, on the sides to encage the, these, the styrofoam uh, floats on the sides of the boats. So it made what was a narrower boat a little wider, uh, but we kept the same ramp that would then offload the troops. So we had boats that were called tango boats, which were the troop carriers, and uh, the multitude of the boats, the mass numbers of the boats, uh, were tango boats, but to protect them, even though they had their own guns, they had uh, 20 millimeter cannons and uh, 30 caliber, 50 caliber machine guns, uh, to provide better armament uh, to the armada, which would go down the rivers uh, in a column. Uh, we had also what was called monitors. And the monitors, like the monitor in the Merrimack of, of the Civil War, uh, the monitors were gunboats. And we had both 40 millimeter cannon and 105 howitzer uh, floating tank kind of monitor uh, to protect the tango boats, the troops. So uh, generally, the columns were led by uh, a monitor going into a canal or going into a particular river waterway uh, where they would drop off the, the, the troops that were, would engage the enemy. Uh, so uh, that then became what was a river division. And uh, in, the, in the time that the Mobile River Reinforce in Vietnam existed, uh, there was actually uh, river squadrons 9, 11, 13, and 15. So there's four different river squadrons. Each squadron had two divisions. Uh, for instance, uh, I was in river squadron 13, and we had river division 131 and 132. So those were divisions of the actual squadron itself. So the first two digits in the division number yeah, the first Reflect two digit the, is a squadron. Yeah, got and it. And the last digit is the division. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then each division had generally uh, about uh, four uh, uh, monitors, and then there was about uh, eleven or twelve tango boats per division. Okay. And and so what how, did the, the, how did the command structure work? I mean, if it's a joint, if you got army and navy guys, at what point does it is is the decision maker? Well, a good question, you know, especially today where you have like SOCOM, which, uh, which determines operations for a joint uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, all the, all, the, all the divisions. You know, back then, you know, because it was just Army and Navy, uh, Army would basically uh, determine uh, what operation uh, needed to take place. In other words, if there was an enemy uh, structure of some sort that was... Uh, spotted in a particular area, and let's say they wanted to go after that enemy in that area, uh, they would put together the battle plan and then involve the Navy in how we're going to insert the troops. 
uh, and sometimes uh, the troops would be inserted on one side of a, uh, call it a peninsula or an area, and then they would be picked up on the other side as they swept through the area. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the coordination, you would have, um, uh, you know, a landing time, and then you would have a pickup time. Okay. Now this also involved later on, uh, you know, we would also insert SEALs. Uh, sure. Because uh, the SEALs associated, of course, with the Navy, uh, the SEALs would have an operation. And, and basically, SEAL op SEALs op operations were, were um, pretty much secret. <coughs> they, would own, they would be the only ones that would know exactly what their operation is. But, you know, they would say, well, we need a ride, you know. So we would drop them off at a particular place, and then we'd get a time to pick them up. Okay. So the army would decide what the what the objective was, uh, and then somebody on the navy side would decide how how we were going to get the troops from one place to another. Yes, the early uh, tango boats, troop carrier boats, were uh, affectionately called rag boats. Okay, and uh, in one of the uh, an acronym really. For a river assault group, okay. Uh, so you know they would be called river assault groups, uh, and that's where the rag came from. But the other thing was the rag top. The early tango boats uh, had a canvas top over the well deck um, to protect the, the troops from all the terrible sun heat sure. that we had in Vietnam. Well, how many troops would you carry on one of those tango? Oh, boats? they might they might carry maybe 20 to 30 troops per, per tango boat. Um, but uh, as I said, the early boats would have uh, canvas tops, and uh, uh, somewhere along the line, after River Division 9 was there, uh, they said, you know, there's actually no place to land a helo. So you know, because of the, the jungle and the water and the mud, you know, if you have to medevac somebody, where do you land the helo? So uh, beginning uh, somewhere with the River Division 11, they started to uh, experiment with putting uh, corrugated steel tops on the, over the well deck to land a helo on the, on the tango boat. And so beginning with River Division 13, uh, when they made those boats, they made them with a steel deck over the well deck so that you could actually land a helo uh, on that and medevac somebody. Wow. So, um, so replacing the rag top with a, with, a, with a helipad, essentially. Exactly. And, and what was uh, pretty interesting is the, uh, uh, you know, the people who were the boat captains of, of those particular boats, you know, they said that they were the boat captain of the smallest aircraft carrier in the world. <laughs> Randy Pete is from a working-class family in southern Michigan. He was in line for a promotion at the automotive firm where he worked, but the draft seemed likely to disrupt things, so Randy enlisted in the hopes of staying close to home long enough to get his promotion before being shipped out. The Navy had a program that if you enlisted for six years, that your first year you would stay home in active reserves, but you'd be home and then the second two years would be active duty, and then another year of you know active reserves, 
and then two years of inactive reserves for a total commitment of six. Sign me up. So I enlisted. They took care of the draft thing. I went. I was flown 12,500 miles from where I was born. It's halfway around the world. And, and little brown people were trying to kill me with guns. <laughs> and at this point... That wasn't what they advertised, was it? <laughs> no. That's not the conversation And, and when I first joined the Navy, I thought, well, I'm so smart, you know? Mm -hmm. Join the Navy, see the world. I'm a genius. I'm, oh, I got this figured out. <laughs> right. And then when my orders came through, I was assigned to River Assault Squadron 13. What month and year did you arrive? Uh, I think we arrived in April of uh, 68. Okay. Pretty tense time. That was the height of it all. There was 550,000 other Americans there uh, during that period that I was there. And, and we were such a unique group because it was the first time the Army and the Navy had gone together and formed a joint unit since the Civil War. So we were cutting new ground all the time, which was interesting. And... Uh, I, you know, I mean, I look back on what we did and how we did it and, and all of that, and uh, I'm proud of the way we conducted ourselves and, and how we handled, you know, tense situations. And um, We never lost a battle, and we never lost the war. We just quit, That's the way I look at it. Yeah. So... Yeah, and, you know, you could even argue that we were ahead when we quit. I would argue that we were. I yeah. was there, I mean. Yeah. In most cases, replacements didn't know until they arrived in Vietnam that they were being assigned to the Mobile Riverine Force. For 9th Infantry guys like Bob Stump, the idea of riding into combat on boats came as a bit of a surprise. I got to Dong Tam, and I'm not sure about the date. I do recall... Uh, that when we got to Dongtam, the the boats, the ships were all down in Canto, and we had to wait. And the funny thing is, they told me your you, the ships are not back, and it, it's it's like I'm in the army. What's the ship stuff? You know, that was my first inclination that I I'm in the army, but I'm also in the navy. <laughs> I had no clue that I was going to be in a mobile. I had never heard of the Mobile Marine Force. It was not the guys that would know more about the Mobile Marine Force are the people that trained for it in 1967, 66 and 67. A lot of these units came over together on, on ships. A.J. McCaskey was drafted at the age of 21. He arrived in Vietnam in September of 1968 and was assigned to the 9th Infantry. I don't remember where we landed, but uh, the oppressive heat and and uh, humidity was uh, the most incredible thing. Anything you did, as soon as you started walking, you started sweating. And the incredible vastness of these bases and seeing a hundred tanks lined up and a hundred helicopters and the chaos and, and what's going on and the dust. And uh, yeah, it was... Uh, uh, a chaotic, busy 
time to get off that plane and see the activity that takes in a war. And uh, and then they assigned us, and uh, off we went. Uh, I think on the trucks to down to uh, Dongtan. The Ninth uh, Infantry Division hadn't been there that long, but um, you know I saw a volleyball court next to the barracks, and uh, I saw a sign on a building that said "Library." And uh, um, I mean, it was uh, a massive base camp and uh and then i saw a swimming pool and i went my god this is a war and they've got all these amenities this is incredible and uh and the first few operations i went on weren't with the navy it was uh a sweep across an open rice paddy with a bunch of guys walking into the jungle to uh uh make a massive presence known Mm. and uh with uh, helicopters overhead shooting rockets into the jungle. And, and uh, you know, it was, even at the time, not knowing anything about combat, uh, I thought, this is crazy. This is guerrilla warfare, and we're walking across a rice paddy, a hundred of us doing a sweep. And that was kind of the World War II tactics, I think, that was evidence of General Westmoreland. And... Uh, it wasn't long. I think General Abrams took over, and we were going out in much smaller units, and and whatever sweeps were uh, five, six guys, or ten, twelve guys, or whatever. And uh, um, and from I think maybe within a few days, you know, I went out to uh, I was we went out to the USS uh, Benoit Benoit, and. Uh, you know, we were living on one of the ships that were anchored in the Mekong River. And it was from there we started working with the Navy and the boats and the Tango boats and, and that kind of thing. Our little podcast has crossed a significant threshold in its journey of growth. It has now been listened to more than 250,000 times. To celebrate and commemorate this milestone, we created a special limited edition collectible coin. It's a bronze challenge coin with the Echoes of the Vietnam War logo in color on one side and the VVMF logo blind embossed on the other. The Echoes of the Vietnam War collectible coin is available as a thank you for your gift of $100 or more, which you can make by going to vvmf.org echoes and scrolling down to the bottom of the page where it says support echoes. Remember, this is a limited edition coin. We really didn't make very many of them. So get yours today before they're all gone. And thanks for helping us get from zero to 250,000 and beyond. Hi, I'm Anne Margaret. I went to Vietnam to entertain the troops in 1966 and 1968. My guys, my gentlemen, if you lived through the Vietnam War era, you know the impact that the war had. But today, we are in danger of history being lost. Current generations know very little about the war or the people who served as more of our Vietnam vets pass away each day, 
Their stories are being lost to history. Together, we can change that. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund is the organization that built the wall. It works to ensure that future generations will understand the war's impact. Let's help keep the promise that the wall was built on. Never forget. Visit vvmf.org to find out how you can get involved. We're working on an episode about R&R, and we could use a little help. If you have stories about R&R, and specifically in Hawaii, email them to echoes at vvmf.org. We plan to start producing the episode in the next week or two, so the sooner the better. And while we're on the subject of favors, I have one more to ask. If you listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Pandora or iHeartRadio, please consider leaving a rating or a review there. It only takes a few seconds, and it really helps the robots bring our podcast to the attention of other folks who might like it. Terry Sater is the author of an excellent book about the mobile riverine force in Vietnam called The Nightmare of the Mekong. When he and his buddies graduated from high school in 1965, they had to figure out how they would contend with the draft. One of Terry's buddies said he wasn't going to enlist. He preferred to take his chances with the draft. The Army sent that guy to Denver for two years. Another buddy took his chances and ended up spending two years in Germany. Terry's strategy was to avoid being sent to Vietnam at all costs, so in April of 1966, he enlisted in the Navy. In March of 1968, he received orders for the Mobile Riverine Force in the Mekong Delta. He was understandably concerned, so Terry called the Bureau of Naval Personnel. And the guy at the other end of the line said, look, if you're worried about getting killed, don't worry about it. We haven't lost a boat yet. It was a couple weeks after Tet, and yep. I remember it was just before we left, and uh, we were watching the battles of Tet on our little black and white TV in our barracks, and uh, it was pretty scary. Uh, in the Delta, I know the Mobile River Marine Force was deeply involved in, in the action and um, helped save some of the cities. And uh, when I was on the plane to South Vietnam. I uh, made the first entry in a diary I kept for six months, telling my family and Judy that uh, that I might not come back, and um, hope my mom and dad would just take care of the other five kids that were at home, and that Judy would find happiness with someone else. I I called my brother on the phone just uh, the night before I left. I had been telling the family and telling Judy uh, that it was not a heavy combat unit, that all we did was patrol and uh, didn't really see any action. I lied, of course. Um, I didn't want them worrying, but I called my brother to tell him that uh, I'd put him down as next of kin so that um, he would be notified and he could take the news to mom and dad if anything happened to me. But when the plane landed, it was uh, like 7.15 in the morning in Tansanut in Saigon. And I still remember walking out the door and there's a scene in Platoon that's similar to it. 
uh, where Charlie Sheen walks out and the heat hits him. And that's just the way it was. It was it like took, I couldn't breathe. It was so hot and humid. It was uh, hard to breathe. And walking into the terminal, there were gaping holes in the roof of the terminal where they had been under a mortar attack just a couple of weeks earlier. And guys standing around, uh, South Vietnamese troops standing around with some machine guns. And that was kind of a startling sight to see. And we uh, bummed rides on helicopters to our base, Dong Tam, uh, quite a way south of Saigon. And after the chopper dropped me off, I walked down to the harbor and I was looking out at the harbor and I saw all the boats that had been shot up and sunk. And I kind of laughed to myself. I thought, yeah, the guy at Bureau of Naval Personnel was right. They didn't lose the boats. They just lost the crews. And uh, I saw a guy sitting on the bank and I walked over to talk to him, learn a little bit about the place. And as I got closer, I noticed he had a cross on his lapels, his collars. And uh, he was a chaplain. And as I got a few feet from him, he, hold up, he held up a roughly made wooden shovel. And he said, look at this. I just took it off a dead gook. And that startled me, that you would hear that phrase from a man of God. And yeah. uh, that was my introduction to uh, the base, the dog right. team. Sometimes we'd go out one or two boats. But uh, when we would go out as a squadron, um, there'd be like 31 boats, 31, 33, something like that, boats in a row going down small canals. So when you picture, now some of those boats had uh, Zippos on them, flamethrowers. Some had 105 howitzers. Um, so you have that line of boats going down and get ambushed. And they're all firing all those machine guns, the cannons, uh, flamethrower. The firepower that it put out was unbelievable. And we were taught that the main thing we had to do, and the thing was drilled into us, and I certainly followed, was that you had to put down such a field of fire that the enemy couldn't poke his head up to fire a rocket at you. Mm. And that's, that's pretty much what we always tried to do. The amazing thing about the boats, too, when you think about what kind of boat it was and what we experienced, sometimes when we'd be ambushed, and all of the firefights I was in, we were, all, we were all ambushed all the time. We never found them and attacked them first. They always waited for us and, and hit us on both sides of the river. And picture a car going down a two- or a three-lane road at – eight or nine miles an hour with machine guns, rockets, automatic weapons, hitting it from both sides for a mile. That's what we did. My name is Frank Moran and I live in Douglasville, Georgia, a small town to the west of Atlanta. Frank is originally from Manchester, New Hampshire. He enlisted in the army right out of high school in the summer of 1963. By the time he arrived in Vietnam in December of 67, he had been through OCS and was a platoon leader assigned to the 9th Infantry Division. 
there was always two battalions on the boats, and the, the third battalion guarded the base camp for Dongtan. So you had six weeks that you were on land and 12 weeks that you were on boats. And how many, how many troops could a, a tango accommodate? Uh, roughly a platoon. It's in a platoon. Uh, um, uh, we had this discussion the other day, but a platoon, a, a full loaded platoon was about 43 men. I never had that many men in my platoon. I think the most I ever had was 28. Hmm. Wow. Uh, so just over half strength. Yeah. And that, that was not uncommon because of the rotation. If you remember that the boat, the bulk of them, so they couldn't rotate everybody at the same time. And it worked out a little better that you would get, you know, one guy every two weeks or two guys in one week and that you'd rebuild that way. And that way you had a time for the new guys to adapt to the old guys to learn the things to do. And then, of course, you lost some through combat, uh, you know, through injuries, through illnesses. And so then those guys had to be replaced, too. The flotilla that we were attached to had two boats called the Zippos. And what they had done, they had taken the weld decks out of these things and put giant na- napalm canister in it. And they had on each side at the, in, the, in the front would throw out a flame about 400 meters. So oftentimes it would go up the canals right before us. And if they drew fire, then they'd throw the Zippo out there. Just to clear the, to clear the jungle. Yeah. When they stop whoever the heck was shooting at you, if you got, you got a bunch of fire coming at you, you're going to stop. Midway through my tour, they started putting platforms on top of them where literally you could land a helicopter on them, Mm -hmm. which was kind of a a neat, a neat thing because it could be a lifesaver. If you had guys on your boat that had gotten hit, or whatever, they could land that helicopter right on top of it and, and take off from there. We would get up generally 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, depending how far away our drop station was going to be, and we would actually load the tango when it was dark. And then we would travel. Um, well, we, we'd obviously leave Dongtam or wherever the boats were based. We would leave the large boats, which was always in the Mekong River, and they were probably – generally a mile offshore so they couldn't be shot at. So we would get onto the little boats and then we'd slowly go up and down the canals and until we reached the point where we were going to do an objective. And then um, we, they would beach, they would drop the ramp and we would get off the beach and then we would continue our operation. And it usually was some kind of circular operation. You went you know, in a couple of kilometers and came back around and, and you were out there generally for two and a half to three days. And because we were always in the water, you had to come back and dry out. And so after about two, two or three days, then the boats would come back. You'd reload the boats and go back on to the, the main ships. Randy Pete. What I ended up on was a ATC armored troop carrier. We were 56 feet long, about 12 feet wide. I believe we weighed around 56 ton. We had two uh, diesel engines, and we could carry about uh, 30 or so fully equipped troops. Okay. And on our boat, we had uh, a well deck area, which is where the troops were at. And in the well deck area, out of either side, the port and the starboard side, 
We had a 50 caliber Browning machine gun. And then next to it, we had two 30 caliber Browning machine guns. So we had six machine guns in the well deck where the troops are. Then on the aft end of the boat, we had three turrets. And then the port and the starboard turret, we had a 20 millimeter cannon. And then the aft turret, which was the only one that could swing and shoot either way. <coughs> Excuse me. We had a Mark 19 40 millimeter grenade launcher. And uh, as soon as I figured all this out, that this is how we were going to be armed and all that kind of stuff, I said, okay, I'm taking the Mark 19. Because I wanted, I don't care where they're shooting from, I want to be able to shoot back. So I didn't want to be stuck on one side or the other. Right. I wanted to be able to swing my turret around and bring my gun to bear wherever I needed to. That's where I learned to sleep, standing up, was on that, on those patrols, or missions, I should say, is we all stayed at our general quarters 100% while we were gone. So I managed, and the other guys did too, you manage, you're in your mouth, you kind of drape yourself around the gun and, you know, you gotta grab a few as best as you can so that immediately you could, you know, pop up and, you know, start shooting. Frank Moran. Um, and one of the things that you may not understand or, or know about is that in the Mobile Riverine artillery, they actually had barges that had 105s on them. And they moved the barges onto the edge of the river. But the interesting was, is once they fired a shot, that barge would rock and roll. And so they had to shoot another one while it was on the updraft, and you know that becomes a little scary if you try. But anyway, so so as an so infantry, you're, you're talking about one hundred five. Like, is that a howitzer? Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a cannon, a giant cannon. So the no, it's the, sitting on a boat. They had they, they each right. had a cannon. So when it's the boat rocks. The boat rocks. Now the and boat is rocking, again. but it has to continue firing. Yes. Um, do you remember your your first time getting on a tango boat? A.J. McCaskey. Yeah, I felt pretty uh, claustrophobic and vulnerable. Um, those B-40 rockets that the uh, Viet Cong used were devastating, and and uh, it uh, it was good to get off them. I mean, the longer you're on the boat, the more vulnerable you felt, and I uh, uh, couldn't wait till the – we never knew where we were going. It was just you get on, and sometimes it'd be – a half an hour, sometimes it'd be two hours. And, uh, or the assignment, the destination would change and they'd turn around and go somewhere else. And so we were kind of confined in, in the hold, I guess, of the, of the tango boat. And, uh, yeah, it was, I was never comfortable on those damn things because, uh, they were just vulnerable. The problem we had was we were in water all the time. And uh, um, talking with other guys that were further north in some of the hill country, they were out for weeks at a time being resupplied and digging foxholes and, and uh, dealing with tunnels and that kind of thing. I never once rode on a, any kind of mechanized tank or armored personnel carrier. It was just too muddy. Uh, we had a lot of problem with uh, 
ringworm and, and uh, jungle rot on our feet and because we were wet all the time. And, uh, well, and part of the reason, too, we didn't walk on the rice paddy dikes because they were always booby-trapped or the threat of a booby trap was there. So we'd always be walking in the, in the rice paddy. And uh, the same in the, in the jungle is if you took a, a traditional path that the Vietnamese might be using, you really had to watch for booby traps and trip wires and things of that nature. So we'd be uh, walking in water. And uh, um, at one point, and this was a months into it, but at one point, uh, I had this bad jungle rot on my feet. I, I couldn't walk anymore. I had to be helicoptered in. And, uh, you know, when when we went back on the ship, when once we were picked up, we'd have maybe, I don't know, 24 hours off. But uh, we always walked around in flip-flops and uh, kept our, you know, go outside and let the sun hit our our feet to dry them out. Can you, I mean, for people who don't really have any idea what, what jungle foot is like, can you, can you describe it? Oh, I don't know. It's a, looks like a reddish rash and, and, uh, you know, if you just, if you're, uh, if you're, well, you if your feet are constantly wet, and you're wearing army issue wool socks with combat boots. And at night, you're afraid to take them off because you don't know if you're going to be hit sleeping on the ground. Um, your air, your feet never had a chance to, to dry off or, or air dry. And, uh, the, uh, yeah, the, the rubbing and the constant wetness and, uh, uh, they were just, turned into a reddish rash, painful, uh, ringworm. Um, it was disgusting. Uh, I can remember a new guy coming in and he, we were on the ship at that point in time. We got a couple of new recruits and, and, uh, the guy looked at my feet and said, Oh my God, I am never, ever going to let my feet get that bad. And I said, you know, after a few weeks in the jungle, you're going to be praying your feet look this bad because it's the only way you get some time off. Mm. Terry Sater. We were constantly on the boat. As a matter of fact, I think every once in a while, the guys in the ninth uh, will say something that uh, shows me that they didn't really understand what we were doing. Um, it, Every once in a while, a guy from the ninth will say, well, you would drop us off and then you'd go back and tie up to the ship and go in and have a hot shower and hot meal and lay in the bunk. And I said, no, we we would drop off the troops and we'd usually go to a, another area called blocking stations to prevent the VC from escaping in a different direction. Um, or we would go back um, and load up more uh, supplies and ammunition and uh, come back. But I, uh, I remember only sleeping on a nice bed out of the whole time I was there, maybe five times. We, we slept, we lived, we lived on the boats and um, 
just had a uh, canvas rack that folded down from the bulkhead and usually had a dirty sheet or poncho and a roll of dirty clothes for uh, a pillow. And uh, I still remember one night a rat crawling across me. And uh, a lot of the guys, uh, including me, our summertime takes us back and we have a difficult time sleeping because I feel like I have bugs all, all over me. One buddy of mine, uh, Frank Springer, that was at the reunion, he still sleeps with a towel over his face because the mosquitoes would be so thick, they would like fill up your mouth. And uh, there's rats and snakes and it was, uh, it was not very comfortable. More than 50 years later, he still sleeps with a towel over his face? Yes. Yeah, it stays with you. In part two of River Rats, you'll hear from a lot of the same voices you heard from in part one, plus a few new ones. They'll share stories about fighting the enemy and the environment in the Mekong Delta, and they'll talk about the connections and the nightmares that have lasted the 50 years since. That's two weeks from now when we come back with more stories of service, sacrifice, and healing. See you then.